Welcome back to Remember Souffle, America's number 10 French cooking podcast. <laughs> you see what I'm doing? I'm, I'm, I'm being quirky, like the movie. Yeah, very yeah. good. <laughs> so random. But yeah, I, I definitely, I didn't expect to like this as much as I did on the rewatch. I was like, wow, this actually isn't a bad movie. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun movie. I distinctly remember the discourse around it being annoying, but. I mean, the discourse around everything is annoying. <laughs> the discourse <laughs> is annoying. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't, if you can't decide between a little breakfast and lunch, why don't you microwave yourself a little bowl of brunch? It's Britney, bitch. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Our ed education, like such as South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere, like such as, and we sitting here, I supposed to be the franchise player, and we in here talking about practice. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Our next door neighbors are foreign countries. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank, Thank you. you. Now watch this drive. This is the type of movie that it was that this line made it past every part of the production process. Yo, yo, you gonna yell. I'm a suicide risk. Do you know? No, it's Morgan Freeman. Do you have any bones that need collecting? <laughs> Only the one in my pants. <laughs> this movie is so white that everybody making the movie, from the editors to the production to the actors, nobody realized that Denzel Washington is you not did. Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had seen The Bone Collector, and I was like, that doesn't sound right. Uh, but <laughs> it, it just sounded like teenagers being stupid and getting something wrong. Like, yeah, you know well, what I mean? Like, that, If that makes sense as a malapropism, if Juno were to ever do that again, it's ever, yeah, that's film, a solid point. Like, yeah, Tony Soprano like screws up stuff all the time and but that's part of his character this is the one one time juno makes a, a pop culture mistake <laughs> yeah weird it's definitely weird that no one going through the script was like Are you sure that's the guy from uh bone collector it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's fine. i don't i don't have to check the poster or nothing it's not like it came out relatively recently in terms of history it's fine <laughs> yeah, it's, i don't need to do a single google search <laughs> It's the one black person mentioned in the entire film, and they just bricked it, just air ball, not even, not even close. Gutter ball. Especially for a movie that loves to talk with AAV as often as you can. For shiz. Welcome to Remember Shuffle, the actual name of the podcast. My name is Ben. With me, as always, is my cohort, Giordano. And I just got to give a big shout out to this guy for podcasting through the pain. I watched him dislocate his shoulder twice this afternoon. <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. I've just never, I can't play sports anymore. I don't <laughs> Shit sucks, man. What sport were you playing? We were playing a non-contact sport, flag football. Giordano <laughs> dislocated his shoulder twice, once on defense, once on offense in a game that we lost by over 30. So it was for a good cause. I'm glad we're able to record because my family has very weak shoulders, unfortunately. And <laughs> my brother, he once hit it like a jackpot at the casino. I was with him and he threw up his arms to celebrate and his shoulders came out. <laughs> and we spent the rest of the New Year's Eve night at the hospital because he couldn't get it back in. But I, could, I got mine back in on the field. So I'm happy because I thought I might have been podcasting from from the hospital so that's obscene <laughs> happy to be here and joining us today our expert guest a good friend of mine coming in from tomorrow in australia jordan the third jordan to appear on this podcast <laughs> it's 7 a.m in australia and i'm extremely tired so please forgive any very poor jokes we'll edit those out don't worry yeah <laughs> so, good, so good man, just good man. just swing as often as you can <laughs> yeah, swing for the and today we are being a little bit pandery we are talking about the 2007 film Juno, a film that was claimed by both the pro-life movement and the pro-choice movement. And it was criticized by both of those sides. So really making everyone happy and everyone unhappy at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And I think that 
Juno is a road sign in history for the most annoying parts of our culture over the last 12 years. Juno is a very quirky movie. And in the 2000s, we saw a lot of twee movies, you know, from hipster nerds, from the Garden States, A Little Miss Sunshine to 500 Days of Summer. And this movie is injecting it. Those movies, maybe you're smoking it, maybe you're freebasing it or something. This movie is an injection of twee. It is a central tenet, is this tweeness. And, you know, we'll walk you through whether or not if it does it successfully out of curiosity, or not. Before we, before we get into that, do you are you labeling twee as a good thing or a bad thing or just a thing that exists? The, yeah, the third, definitely. Yeah, I think that it's fine. You Like anything, you can do it good or bad. Do it well or poorly, Giordano. <laughs> <laughs> Much like language, you can do it real good or real bad. <laughs> so why are we doing this? Well, Juno, which came out in 2007, was a critical and commercial darling. This is an indie movie that was made for $7 million and made over a quarter billion dollars at the box office. It was nominated for four Academy Awards and the real Academy Awards awards not best sound or whatever but like best picture best actress best director it even won for best original screenplay for first time writer diablo cody yeah not bad and mm. little fun fact is jennifer garner is in this this made jennifer garner more money than any of her big studio productions because she got a percentage instead of a lump sum because you can get paid that way in an indie movie in the way that you can't with a big studio film it's a smart movie should always do it yeah <laughs> take a note a-list actors stop doing marvel movies i want to see more junos points <laughs> on the back end we're talking juno and i said we're being a little bit pandery we'll get into the politics of the movie but we are of course coming to you from america three months after abortion rights were stripped away from much of the country and we're going to ask the question, did Juno cause this? <laughs> Is Juno responsible for the Dobbs decision? <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> so first, a disclaimer. Before we discuss the characters and do a synopsis of the film, the character of Juno is played by trans-Canadian actor Elliot Page, who uses he, they pronouns. We will not be dead naming Elliot Page, but we will be using she, her pronouns to describe the character of Juno, who is a cishet woman. So we just want to get that right out of the way. Mm -hmm. The rule number one of podcasting on this pod, you are not allowed to yell at us. So please, <laughs> we are doing our best, okay? <laughs> I will also say, if you want to yell at us, please email ben underscore 85 <laughs> at gmail.com. We also do read all of the YouTube comments and the podcast comments. So if you leave a comment, I will read it. You yes. poor souls. That sounds awful. <laughs> Some of them are mean, but they're kind of funny. So yeah. what are you going to do? Yes, disclaimer out of the way. Let's describe the character. Because Juno is this very sweet, small-scale indie film. There's essentially six main characters that you need to know. You have Juno, played by Elliot Page, a self-sufficient, independent, smart 16-year-old who finds herself, at the beginning of the film, pregnant. What is there to say about Juno? I mean, she's smart, she's sassy. Mm -hmm. Not has to be, but is generally presented by the movie as the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. Not in a super obnoxious way, but in a very snarky teenage way. Yes. You know? She's so independent that you just you want to be friends with her because you feel like she's doing the coolest thing, the right thing. Absolutely. She definitely doesn't ever second guess herself. And she's very plugged into pop culture and punk aesthetics. We're forgetting the most important thing, though. She has the burger phone. Yes, yeah, the hamburger phone. Without the hamburger phone, she would be nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Polly also has the hamburger phone. I don't know if you guys caught that. It's in the background on his desk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so they speak to each other on that. It's very cute. Next up, Polly Bleeker, played by Michael Sarah. Also Canadian, isn't he? Yeah, also yeah. Canadian. A lot of Canadians. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, that they claimed that they should have been eligible for a Canadian Oscar. I can't remember what they're called. They might be the called Junos. the Junos, honestly. <laughs> the Junos. They yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they were not eligible because of the funding for the movie was American. Oh, oh. that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, two Canadian leads filmed in Vancouver. This is yeah. Yeah. obviously filmed in Vancouver. It looks so much like Vancouver. Vancouver, yeah. the city that never plays itself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, true. What What is there to say about him? You know what the thing is about Michael Sarah characters? He comes baked in. So you see Michael yeah. Sarah on screen and you know what he's all about. He He's, um, I, I guess I was just thinking maybe, you know, with Juno. You know, he's like the teenage American Hugh Grant. Like yeah. that sort of like, um, um, oh, uh, excuse me. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Like that <laughs> yes. kind of guy. He's yeah. like awkward, but he's kind of cute. And he's talented, but he thinks nobody likes him. That's, that's right. him. In kind of so the movie movies. doesn't really characterize him too much. Listen, you know who this fucking guy is. You've seen him in every movie for the last three years doing this bit so 
You've seen him in Arrested Development, where he wants to fuck his cousin. It's that guy. Yeah. <laughs> We're being slightly flippant, but seriously, within the film itself, we know that he runs cross-country, and he loves orange Tic Tacs, and that is about it that the film gives us. They characterize both of them as children, I think, but especially him. He sleeps in a race car bed. <laughs> his <laughs> yeah. favorite meal is breakfast for dinner. Yeah. Everybody is shocked that he was able to bust in the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There was that genuine shock. They're like, Polly Bleaker? You know, like, yeah. he had sex? It's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah Juno's stepmom is like, you know, this wasn't his idea. Just everyone has, <laughs> everyone has a ton of contempt for poor, poor <laughs> Polly Bleaker. <laughs> Moving on, we have Juno's father, Mac McGuff, played by the god-tier character actor, J.K. Simmons. He has a little something I like to call bald excellence. So I am a big fan of him. He's at his quirky funniest in in this role he does a lot of very funny quirky roles you know bring me pictures of spider-man obviously is like foremost among people's minds but yeah because he kind of plays the stern dad character but he's also very cute and nice and loving he's not mean to her even though he's stern dad he's still like yeah. so loving yeah there there is a world where this character comes off very red foreman-y so i was gonna say it's like red foreman on xanax or something or like red foreman <laughs> on Wellbutrin. <laughs> Just... We also have Juno's stepmother, Brenda McGuff, played by Allison Janney. In the film, she's very supportive of Juno. And this is something that's wild. When we get to the politics of it, I read some right-wing reviews of this who liked what they saw as an anti-abortion message, but because they're social conservative right-wingers, don't like the fact that Juno's from a blended family. So they described Brenda the stepmom as cold and aloof. Blended family? Yeah, and that it's not the biological mother, right? Okay, so, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdos. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy shit. But yeah, I mean, she, she has Juno's back. She still thinks that Juno's a dumbass, but she doesn't play a huge, huge role in the film but she's good in the scene she's in yeah and then the last two characters are the couple that is going to adopt juno's baby so they are mark and vanessa who are like the yuppie couple that want to have a baby and they're very different mark is sort of an aging gen x guy who still dreams of glory days he was in a band that apparently went on tour in the pacific northwest i was gonna say he's a guy who believes that 1993 was the greatest year in rock and roll history <laughs> which is just a wrong and bad opinion <laughs> he's a yuppie but it's very clear that he hasn't given up his dreams of being a rock star and i didn't get this as a kid because i was an idiot but it's telepath in every scene of this movie that mark is not ready to be a father and does not oh not at all yeah every scene he's in he and like where they talk about having the baby or getting the baby room ready or any of that stuff he's kind of really apart from that yeah. conversation they're like whatever whatever you want to do which could come across as just Jason Bateman awkward the way that he plays roles, but was super set up as he does not want to be dead. This is fully driven by by his wife. Yeah, when he's shown the ultrasound picture, he's like, oh, wow, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the movie does play this, I, I think, quite predictable. But again, like Jordana, when I saw this at 16 or 17 years old, I saw him like Juno did, which I think is probably a sign of good ready. I was like, man, this guy's fun. He plays guitar. He likes campy horror films. Why doesn't his cold wife let the boy have fun? <laughs> It's so funny because I'm going to sound maybe like a dweeb here. I totally caught it. <laughs> like I, <laughs> on that 12th rewatch, you caught it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so just moving on, we got Vanessa, who's Mark's wife. She's extremely well characterized, played brilliantly by Jennifer Gardner. She's the perfect suburban woman. Our first view of her as the audience is her pissing up the home, arranging flowers and hand towels. She's obsessed with the idea of having a child. She has read all the baby books. She seems shell-shocked the whole movie in a way because you can tell that she just wants to have a baby so bad because she can't. I think it's a very traumatic thing for her and it comes off in all of her lines that this has affected who she is in, in a really big way. And I think it comes off very sincerely the way she gushes over Juno when she finds out any information about her pregnancy. At one point, Juno says to her, oh, you're lucky it's not you. And it really just feels like a dagger in her heart. Yeah, that's lines specifically is such an interesting one because watching Garner's performance, she feels like someone who is going to absolutely shatter if this doesn't come through. Like she's made of glass the whole movie. Mm -hmm. And 
she just wants Juno to like her, to be comfortable. Because when Juno says that, there's a, sh- I think there's a reverse shot of of her face. Oh yeah. After the the line, and you can see that she's trying to stay smiley after that happened, but she dies inside. Yeah, oh, yeah. absolutely. It's a, it is a dagger in the heart. Yeah. So okay, let's get into the synopsis here. Juno's ego is prego. Everyone. <laughs> the the movie opens with Juno finding out that she's pregnant from a recent sexual experience with Michael, Sarah, Polly Bleeker. So, you know, given that she's in high school, Juno decides to get an abortion. But when she shows up at the abortion clinic, she runs into a protester who informs her that the baby has fingernails. And she gets freaked out by uh, the abortion clinic and decides to keep the baby. Of note, it's not just a protester. It's a schoolmate. It's someone she's Mm -hmm. in class with. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think she probably gives that opinion more weight than maybe it's due as a result. Right. Mm -hmm. She then finds a couple in the penny saver who wants to adopt and meets with them. And they're this yuppie couple, Mark and Vanessa. Vanessa wants a baby so badly, more than anyone in a film ever. And she's jonesing so hard to be a mom. Whereas... Mark's this aging Gen X rocker who has sold out to make commercials jingles. One of the things I love about this movie is these little touches, little details. And again, I caught on the rewatch. One of the products that he has to write a jingle for is called Bowl of Brunch. <laughs> a mic. <laughs> A microwavable brunch bowl. <laughs> That's, that really is peaky uppy, right? I love brunch, but also I don't want to cook and I'm lazy. Moving on with the synopsis. Juno meets with this couple and agrees to give them the baby. And while she's there, she super connects with Mark, the husband, Jason Bateman. They share a lot in common in terms of both liking punk music, both being musicians, which makes sense because like we described, he's this guy who can't really grow up and Juno is still a child. After the ultrasound, Juno goes over to Paul and Vanessa's house. They're alone together and they bond watching some B movies and listening to some Sonic Youth. She then brings the, the, the ultrasound photos to her father, J.K. Simmons, and he tells her, what? I don't want these. Bring me pictures of Spider. Man. <laughs> a majority of, of the plot of this movie is her getting closer to Mark while continuing to struggle being a, a pregnant student in high school. But one of the other plots of the movie is her relationship with her baby daddy, Polly Gleeker, who is trying to connect romantically with her, but she's pushing him away. As we mentioned, Juno's a very independent person who in some ways has a lot of walls. She's very sarcastic. And so she pushes Polly away a lot. And this causes some friction between her and Polly. And at one point after a big argument that she has with Polly, she runs over to see Mark. Jason Bateman's character and they bond some more they listen to some more music made her a mixtape and they begin to slow dance and Jason Bateman tells her that he's leaving Vanessa and that he doesn't want a kid he's having a full-on midlife crisis and sort of implying that he wants to be with someone like Juno I think he is implying that he wants to be with Juno <laughs> to be I honest. thought that I watched that scene four times and he never explicitly says I want to be with you but you're right he doesn't explicitly say it yeah the it way is implicit. That dance, and he's face to face with her they're really close yeah. when he, he puts his that. hands on her shoulder on his shoulders you know yeah again it's another really nice writing touch in the film where a lesser film would have him just come out and say I want to be with you but yes because he knows what he's doing is so gross and wrong because of it because because it's a crime in the because <laughs> it's a crime because <laughs> yeah, it's wildly <laughs> illegal like yeah. he has plausible deniability he says how do you think of me he leaves it as a question yeah. and the ball's in your court now, Juno, which I think is- Child. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, I think it's a nice touch because I think that's how creepy grooming would probably go down in this situation. Absolutely. It's a lot of little things that he does. He'll tell her she's an amazing person. They'll talk on the phone while she's at school and yeah, he sort of makes a move on her and it causes Juno to start crying and she runs upstairs into Jennifer Gardner. And at this point, Mark tells his wife that he's leaving her and doesn't want to have a child. Breaks up with Vanessa and get his band back together. <laughs> so this is the emotional low point of the movie. You know, at this point, Juno has yeah. broken up with Polly or at least rejected his advances. Then Mark and Vanessa, the couple that is meant to adopt her baby, has also broken up. And Juno is crying on a drive home from their house. And then she writes a note to Vanessa. You, yeah, you, the viewer, don't 
don't see what the note says, but she leaves it in the door and Jennifer Garner reads it. And then you're left in a little bit of suspense at that point. Right. So in the end, she puts down her walls with Polly. She fills up his mailbox with orange Tic Tacs and learns to sort of get over herself, delivers the baby, gives it to Jennifer Gardner, who will raise the baby alone. And we find out that the, the note reads, if you're still in, I'm still in. The movie ends on a happy note. Juno has delivered the baby. Jennifer Gardner has become a mother. Jason Bateman is back in an awesome band. and <laughs> Which you don't see. Information we don't have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and at that band, Imagine Dragons. <laughs> oh. oh, Jordana. <laughs> and the movie ends with Juno and Polly Bleeker playing an anti-folk song together on their guitars. Yeah, and there are so many nice little touches in the movie to show you that it's like a happily ever after. So earlier in the movie, we saw Pauly practicing this song even when he was broken up with Juno. And then later they're playing it together. Or at one point, Juno and Brenda, the stepmom, have a little fight because Brenda's obsessed with dogs. And Juno says, you don't even have a dog. And Brenda says, it's because you're allergic. And as Juno gets on her bike to go bike with Pauly, Brenda is playing with the dog because she said, when you move out to college, you're going to be able to get a dog. So we know from these little details, that's all show, don't tell, that Juno's going to go off to college and Brenda's going to get her dog. Again, a lesser movie yeah. would show Jason Bateman failing, for instance. Like they would show well, like- yeah. It was so bumbling on stage, everybody booing, and then Jennifer yeah. Garner buys a dog and everyone cheers and finds $100. Yeah. Like, it, you know, it would you know, <laughs> kind of have that sort of vibe to it. It was one of the first films that I had seen, I think, as a teenager that had what I would call sort of an open-ended ending. Just because Juno and Polly Bleeker are together at, in high school does not mean they're going to stay together, but at least they're going to give it a shot. And Jennifer Garner's road is very hard now. Like, she's going to be <laughs> yeah. a single mom. The, the happiness with Juno, I think, is that she's going to live a normal youth, you know, or at least like maybe a less demanding one. When she's playing guitar with Polly at the end, you really get the sense that this is what a 17-year-old girl should be doing. Should be doing, yeah. And that's the happiness to, to her story. And it's yeah. summer. The film mimics the nine months of a pregnancy that also happens to be the nine months of an academic school year. So it opens in fall and there are title cards. At the end of the film, we're in summer and they're playing guitar and it's happy and good. But yeah, that's Juno. Before we get into our theme, the politics and everything, how do we all feel about it? I think we all like the film well enough. I give it two thumbs up. Yeah, I love this movie. I think it's great. It's one of the first movies I bought on DVD with my own money when I got a job as a teenager. I've watched it at least a dozen times. The performances were great. I absolutely fell in love with Elliot Page mm-hmm. when I was a teen. Like the yep. performance yeah. was just like, why can't I meet somebody like that? Like, you know, like that kind of like reaction. Put out a Craigslist ad, looking for a girl with hamburger phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was something sweet. Like I learned how to play that song. Any, anyone else but you? There were so many bits that hit the right part of, of me when I was a teen, young adult. I really like this movie. First of all, it made me cry. And any movie that yep. makes me cry, that's a baseline three stars. <laughs> yeah. There's a scene where Jennifer Gardner, who, like I said, it just wants to be a mother so bad. And she finally gets to hold the baby at the end. Mm. And you are made of stone if you do not cry during that scene <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> my cry scene is when juno connects with jk simmons her father when she's really worried the scene where she starts by saying i'm uh, just out dealing with things way beyond my maturity level and he has an i'm there for you kid moment that's that's the one that tugs at my heartstrings mm-hmm. it's yeah I, I think i cried at least twice during this movie but at least one of them was when she does the big romantic gesture and fills Polly Bleeker's mailbox with, mm. with Tic Tacs, there's something so teenager and silly about doing something like that, that it felt so endearingly sweet because she's so independent throughout the whole movie, not in a bad way, just in a, I don't need anybody kind of way. And then she gives in and does something silly for Paul. And there's something about that that just hit me so hard because he's so happy when it happened. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, like Michael Sarah happy. So like he kind of <laughs> has a spark. But <laughs> he sees that he just goes, oh my God, orange Tic Tacs. And there's something about that that absolutely brutalized me when I when I watched that movie. Yeah, That's, interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, she, she, she's sarcastic and it, it's her finally being sincere in some Yes, way. that's it. That's right. She's so snarky and it's got to be cool and fun. Like when she's buying the pregnancy test from Dwight from The Office, uh, <laughs> she, she is snarky the whole time, trying not to show concern about the fact that she might be pregnant at 16 and keeps that level of snark the whole movie mm-hmm. until 
basically Jason Bateman kept to catch a predator's her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she starts being sincere for, for a lot of that latter part of the movie. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting that we all cried at, at different points. I guess it, it really yeah. has something for everybody. Mm. I just wanted to put that in because we've taken some flack for being too critical. I was called a player hater by someone who listened to, <laughs> to our podcast. So. Uh, 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 my friend Rick he listened to our entourage episode and accused Ben of being a player hater <laughs> because that would have was... been a, a brutal episode because that show is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You're a player hater. I agree. I mean, I watched every episode and it's an exceptionally oh. bad show, but and the movie. Or did you do it just for the podcast? Just for the podcast. Yeah. Sweet. God, that's a lot of time investment for, for a podcast, man. That's that I feel like you would have been a different person on the other end of that. <laughs> yeah, douchebag. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's nice. We all like the movie. Okay, that's nice. So we've talked about the plot of the movie. Everybody is now familiar with what happens, who the characters are. So now let's get into some of the themes of the uh, issues surrounding the movie. Let's talk about the politics of the film. This is, like I said up top, this is a movie that was claimed by the anti-abortion and the pro-choice movement. It was claimed by them. It was also by other people in these movements criticized by them. So all four chunks of the quadrant. And I think what it is, is it's essentially apolitical to centrist, I think is how it reads now. And what frustrates me about the film is that ostensibly this was meant to be a pro-choice film in that Juno chooses to keep the baby, but she does have the option of getting an abortion, right? So that is a pro-choice message. And that's what Diablo Cody, the screenwriter, has said she was doing. Where I think the film might air a little bit is that I think it really softens the harshest edges of the anti-choice lobby. So when Juno goes to the clinic, who's there protesting? One cute Asian teenager who makes a little verbal flub. She says, all babies want to get born and not a hooting horde of Yahoo shouting baby murderer, holding up pictures of medical procedures that might not even be that particular procedure meant to shock you, right? Mm. Then when she goes in the clinic, the receptionist is incredibly cavalier and doesn't really care. She delivers a line, please surrender any bombs you might have. Implication, this is a thing that doesn't happen, right? It plays it so cavalier. And I know hindsight is 2020. In 2007, maybe they didn't know what was going to happen in 2022, obviously. But I think the mistake that the film makes is just treating the issue like it was settled when it was not. And literally taking some of these anti-choice talking points, like your baby has fingernails. That's what they love to say. Your baby has X. It felt like she was easily tricked, like is a teenager who was easily tricked. That for me is what the movie said a little bit more was they will use underhanded tactics to trick easily influenced people. Not that Juno Mm. is presented as an easily influenced person per se, but she's 16. She's still Mm going to have the foibles of being a 16 year old. And the receptionist is also like 20 at the oldest. She's presented as being very college this is my college job kind of Mm -hmm. kind of thing and she doesn't care in an extremely american way she has no respect for her surroundings despite the fact that most people who work at those clinics super do Mm -hmm. but she has to be she's super cool would otherwise be working at a record store if she could yeah she's like a dmv clerk right yeah yeah absolutely that's that's the energy Mm -hmm. she's bringing and i think the movie you're right does err in presenting that as well, this is so rote. This is just another medical procedure. And I think most receptors would have offered, you know, some level of comfort in, mm-hmm. in a moment like that. Even if it's rote for them, they had to have that character also be snarky. Okay. What about you, Giordano? Well, I mean, I see this movie as being completely apolitical and I'm okay with it. It's hilarious that they made an apolitical abortion movie. <laughs> like <laughs> they took all the politics of an abortion movie and replaced them with ukulele music, which is <laughs> a great artistic choice and it comes from a place of great confidence politically you couldn't do this today because there's too much at stake i almost disagree with the idea that this movie has to be reactionary to the times that it's living in i don't know i think you can make a movie about someone giving up a baby for adoption without making sure that the movie is pro-choice 
I think it is inherently a pro-choice movie because Juno is not forced to carry the child. I think the movie is much darker if Juno was forced into carrying the baby. Mm -hmm. And I know that the screenwriter and the filmmakers are pro-choice. And I think that comes through. Diablo Cody has said that, she says, I fucking hate all of you. When she got a letter thanking her for writing a pro-life movie. (laughs) And I think that the movie is fine as is. You shouldn't have to mold your film to react to like the politics surrounding it so that it becomes, you know, the post or something. Mm-hmm. You know That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I want to watch the modern Juno where she gets an abortion or she dies from an ectopic pregnancy at the end. <laughs> like- <laughs> or the, the protesters are more brutal. Like would it would it have added or subtracted anything for you if the protesters were more realistic? <laughs> okay, so that that's one area where I'm gonna give Ben kudos and say that yes, they they really whitewash the abortion. I uh, you might even want to just take that out entirely because it is a funny I really like that scene. Yeah. But you probably could have put that line somewhere else. Because I knew this girl, she had this like crazy freak out because she took too many behavioral meds at once. And, and she just like ripped off her clothes and, and dove into the fountain at Ridgedale Mall and was like, I am a kraken from the sea. That was you. So I do agree with Ben. And then there's also one line that they also probably could have taken out, which I'll play right now. Somebody else is going to find a precious blessing from Jesus in this garbage dump of a situation. Diablo Cody, come on. <laughs> How do you not see that getting picked up by the <laughs> Was that Was that Allison Janney's character yeah. who says that? Yeah. yeah, see, I, I read that line as very sarcastic. The person who's going to take it are going to be like Jesus people, right? I read that as sarcastic, but still, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's these little things that just leave the door open a crack and i get what you're saying giordano is the movie better if we slam the door <laughs> if we don't leave that crack open if we slam the door so like it's still quirky juno but now she gets spat on as she's walking into the abortion clinic like that sounds like a, a good word <laughs> but yeah i, I and, and i'm with you giordano like not all art needs to be political it is the kind of thing that just it's hindsight in 2020 when this you know it, was, it wasn't the time it wasn't the time to treat it so cavalierly <laughs> In 2007, this is before states started rolling back abortion Mm. access by just nickel and diming it. Mm -hmm. And they were just secure with their position. And I guess they just didn't really feel the need to slam the door on it. But I agree with you, Giordano, on that one, actually. I think that it could be cavalier about its position because the abortion debate, while definitely not settled in America in 2007, felt like there were at least some places where the access was there. And Juno lived in one of those places. Mm -hmm. And so for her, that was the story of a girl who, who, who did live in a place where there was abortion access. I don't think that you can draw a line from Juno to 2022 and go, <laughs> this, this fucking movie was so cavalier. Roe versus Wade hadn't been codified yet. And now it's their fault. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, like it probably... Sh- what the film really needed was a Sorkin-style policy <laughs> conversation about the need to codify Roe v. Wade. It would have really... Put a fucking improved. gun to my head if that was in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In South Carolina, we're proud to announce the Juno bill that we are putting through (laughs) to make sure that every dumpster fire of a teenage pregnancy turns into a beautiful blessing from Jesus. God damn that. Like you could hear Lindsey Graham saying that. But he's trying to be cool, but he's 15 years behind the times and so makes a Juno reference. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) He's like, "Mm, uh, listen here, home skillets. Uh, (laughs) We're we're, we're passing the... uh, uh, your ego is prego, Bill. <laughs> oh, God. And Mitch McConnell is playing a ukulele in the background. <laughs> Come on, it's, it's going to be cool. No, he looks he, so, he, like, he, he looks, he looks so much like a like a frog or some kind of reptile. It needs to be a banjo like Kermit, right? <laughs> yeah. And I never met a zygote that I didn't like. A <laughs> fetus is a baby. <laughs> the Republicans taking on a Juno aesthetic in order to get their anti-abortion stuff passed. Like maybe Mitch McConnell is is taking calls on a hamburger phone. Uh, uh, We will say, uh, honest to blog, Barack Obama is born in Kenya. (laughs) Listen here, Holmes. Yeah. Uh, The baby has fingernails. 
uh, 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 Thundercats are go. <laughs> That's what Judah says when her water breaks. A 16 year old girl yes. in 2007 says Thundercats are go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have made America a Sonic Youth mixtape and <laughs> want to know if anybody wants to join me for a jam session. <laughs> There are a bunch of pages in my office and all I see are their little pork swords flapping around. (laughs) Yeah. In the film, Juno objectifies a group of male runners. Says, When I see them all running like that with their things bouncing around in their shorts, I always picture them naked even if I don't want to. All I see is pork swords. And the Amazon trivia told me that in order to achieve the bouncing that was required, the testicular bouncing, they had to attach rubber balls to the waist of the extras as they ran to really get the bouncing jiggle just right. So if you were a young man who saw this and developed body image issues because your pork swords weren't flopping around like the runners, I think they, I think we have a class action lawsuit on our hands here. <laughs> I don't think that they would have imagined that this would become a controversial movie in in a decade and a half because suddenly it's The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so yeah, I think it it had its place. It doesn't need to, it can leave the door open. My analogy that I've given to it is this is a pro-life movie in the same way that Shawshank Redemption is a pro-breaking out of prison movie. (laughs) (laughs) Just because you like Shawshank doesn't mean that you think that everyone should break out of prison. I mean, I do think that, but that's a coincidence. I think we should break out of prison. That's a bad analysis. No, I, I I agree with you guys a lot more. I was trying to create some friction in the thing when I said, is this responsible for the Dobbs decision? The answer is obviously no. <laughs> I think it is worth just stressing, given how partisan and polarized and politicized all art is now, mm. you could make a movie in which you discussed abortion and it wasn't a big thing in 2007. I just want to mention one quick thing about teenage pregnancy here, which is that 2007, very strange time for teenage pregnancy. There was a moral panic about the teens are all getting pregnant. You had Juno, Knocked Up, Waitress, a bunch of shows came out, 16 and Pregnant, had five spinoffs. And Bristol Palin got pregnant during the campaign. And actually, people tried to blame Juno. They called it the Juno effect. Have you heard about this, folks? Uh, The teens, they're all getting pregnant because it's cute. That's ridiculous. Are you kidding me? Yeah, Fox News ran stories about how Juno was making the teens get pregnant. Ridiculous. Oh my God. I looked at the math and people have looked at the math and there there was a drop in teenage pregnancy between 2007 and 2008. It turns out the same people who liked twee-ass Juno were also not the same people who were going to get pregnant because they saw a movie about it. Teen pregnancies have been in a free fall for like 20 something years now. Mm. Just fucking wiener ass conservatives. I mean, again, because I live in a country with sex education and easily accessible birth control. Is that a reason for, in- because of increased sex education? Like, is is there a reason for that? Or is it just, you know, unknown? I think there is. And again, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. So fucking don't yell at me, listener. But I think it's a combination of, yes, like some level of comprehensive sex education in some places in America. And then the very depressing fact that I think the millennials are the first generation to have less sex than the Gen Xers. And the the Gen Z is apparently having even less sex than the millennials because everyone's too, too anxious to bone. Also, yeah, I know that Dr. Alex Jones actually has said that they're putting hormones <laughs> in the water. And it's, it's made everybody Making the gay. frogs gay, yeah. Well, it's made everybody gay, and so nobody's getting pregnant. So I think that's part of it as well. Okay, so a class-based analysis of Juno. Yeah, okay, hold on. This this is something, yeah, that I came up with while watching the film. But I think that it's something that the film cultivates with a lot of these really nice little touches. So Juno and her family and Pauly Bleeker and his family are more working-class people. And their homes are like Napoleon Dynamite aesthetic. They're covered in knickknacks. We're talking wood paneled basements. They live in the exterior shots. They're like very modest kind of homes. Her father works at HVAC. Her mother runs a nail salon. Juno is a film about how the upper classes are vampires who will steal your baby from you. (laughs) Is this a serious reading or or are you pulling my leg here? (laughs) Yes. Let Ben cook. (laughs) (laughs) 
So the film makes clear when they drive out to Mark and Vanessa's house. It's McMansion after McMansion after McMansion as they drive by. And the the Amazon Prime X-ray thing will tell you that it's a continuity error because they show the same house twice, but it's not. It's because they're so the same. It's so similar. It's so cookie cutter. It's meant to be soulless and corporate. And then the, the Juno family gets there and they just act, you know, genuinely. And the rich folk are scandalized at these boors. You know, Juno fist bumps the lawyer. J.K. Simmons doesn't know what a Pilates machine is. And everyone's scandalized and pearl clutching. And I think at the end of the day, the working class people, through their class solidarity, have a much happier ending. The, the rich, bougie people. You know, as Jordan acknowledged, Jennifer Garner's going to have a very hard time. She's going to become a single mother. The rich lack class solidarity. There is a new world for us to take. We can just exploit it. <laughs> wow. Uh, Jay Garn is a little, you know, Juno comes into the house. She's like, oh, I found you guys in the penny saver. And she's a little uh, shocked at the fact that she's potentially going to be getting a child from the penny saver. She's she's put off by this. There, there is such a stark contrast when you go to the yuppies house, which is in another town, and you're at the McGuff household. They look mm. incredibly different. One is very kitschy and homey, and the other one is very sterile and very nice. Oh, God. You said sterile for her environment, and she is sterile. She can't. Ooh. Uh, uh, that's a terrible thing to say, I know. And the movie makes clear this is not just my Pepe Silvia reading of class into the thing. There are all these different <laughs> levels of conflict where the ultrasound tech, the upjunked ultrasound tech is very judgmental of Juno when she goes for her first ultrasound. And Juno's yeah. stepmom steps in and defends her daughter, says, you know, you think you're a doctor. Why don't you go back and learn a real trade? Solidarity in the face. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's the most uncomfortable scene in the movie is <laughs> Juno's stepmom loses it on the ultrasound tech for being judgy about being teenager and a pregnant. What is your job title exactly? I'm an ultrasound technician, ma'am. Well, I'm a nail technician, and I think we both ought to stick to what we know. You think you're so special because you get to play picture pages up there? My five-year-old daughter could do that, and let me tell you, she's not the brightest bulb in the tanning bed. Instead of insulting the woman for being judgmental, this movie is very anti-ultrasound tech. Right? And anti-doctor. <laughs> Honey, doctors are sadists who like to play God and watch lesser people scream. Which I approve of. Yeah, this yeah. Is, we, we gotta no! stop <laughs> we gotta stop respecting the body mechanics so much. Oh God! Okay? <laughs> what podcast am I on? I <laughs> uh, welcome to Remember Shuffle, the anti-doctor podcast. <laughs> Remember, eat random mushrooms you see in the trees. That will cure you. And don't get the vaccine. <laughs> If that's all we have for the class politics of the Juno movie, <laughs> let's get into the twee culture of the movie. So the, like I said, the 2000s, you know, there was this twee thousands thing that was going on. The Beholian Dynamite had just come out, made a ton of money. Here's what I mean when I say twee. You are attempting to wear simple life as an ironic costume. It's a parody of small town life and it's earnestness. And it's ironic because you're sort of relishing in how lame and cheesy it is and how cutesy it is. The idea of having a hamburger telephone and saying things like, honest to blog? Yeah. To me, it is very put on. And I forgive the movie because at least it's consistent with it. And it is like a teenager who's doing it for the most part. And teenagers are fucking stupid. I was listening to a lot of podcasts about Juno and they were all sort of insulting how lame the speech patterns are in this movie. And I, I agree, it is lame, but you're lame when you're 16 years old, unfortunately. Very few people get to be fucking cool in high school. And while Ben and I were talking about this, I reminded him that in high school, we both wore geological time watches that we made by hand. They were watches that were always set to like the quaternary period, which is oh, like- yeah, The geological wow. era that it was. Yeah. Listen, we, we weren't like your normal boys. We were quirky. We were so yeah. random. I'm sure those watches would sell on Etsy now. This is cool because these people don't see themselves as losers. And even if they do, they understand that they have coolness that is apart from all these other people. They're doing their own thing. They're, they don't care what other people think about them. And I think that that's like a really sweet thing to have for lead characters in a teen movie. Yeah, and I think you're right, Jordan. It's okay when the teen characters do it, but when the adults in this film talk this way, it is painful. Yeah, 
So I, I agree with people when they said this movie is annoying when it's adults. The movie opens with her at a convenience store buying a pregnancy test from Rain Wilson, White Shrewd from The Office. And you get lines like this. That ain't no Etch-a-Sketch. This is one doodle that can't be undid, Holmes Gillett. <laughs> it's like, this is a 30-year-old man who works at the convenience store who's speaking but like this. that's why I take it. That's why I take it, because he is... He's a small town convenience store clerk and he has this aesthetic of nothing else is going on for me. All right, well, let's let's try one more just to see if it comes in then. Third test today, mama bear. Your ego is prego, no doubt about it. Yeah. Maybe your little boyfriend's got mutant sperms, knocked you up twice. Silencio, old man. Look, I just drank my weight in Sunny D and I gotta go pronto. So her saying Silencio, old man, is it's lame, but it's a 16-year-old. 16-year-olds are fucking lame. I Have you yeah. ever read your Facebook statuses from when you were 16 oh, years old? Refuse to do that. Refuse. I, Silencio, old man, is probably the best thing you could find. <laughs> but when this guy is doing it, it's still, it's just like a bit, it's a bit much. I, and again, I will, I will say that he feels just like a burnout stoner type. If the parents spoke like this, I think I'd be agree with you. If they were always, yeah, uh, your ego is prego. And it's like, you're J.K. Simmons. <laughs> Please don't talk like this. You know, you're Alice and Janney. Like, you're better. <laughs> it does yeah. kind of does it, it, it squeaks through where when the little stepsister is putting bacon bits on her potato he says liberty bell if you put one more bacon on that potato i'm gonna kick your little monkey butt it's it approaches the line i get it he's talking to a yeah. four-year-old so you might yeah you might speak that way but it's come on jay jonas well I, I and, and i would it. say that diablo cody is a writer from the midwest so they potentially were writing this movie sincerely. What you worry about is that because Napoleon Dynamite made like a billion dollars, that they are cynically writing tweeness into this movie as a cash grab. And you're just hoping that that's not what's happening here. That's true. I mean, it's a super sincere movie. So you hope not, right? Because the rest of the movie feels so sincere. Mm-hmm. Jeez, banana, shut your freaking gob, okay? <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to play one more of the worst defenders of this movie. <laughs> Jeez, banana, shut your friggin' gob, okay? That's the second line of the movie. <laughs> yeah, the tweeness gets turned up to 11 with the anti-folk soundtrack. And my take on the anti-folk movement is that it works exceptionally well in this and only this context. I tried to listen to this soundtrack while going around and doing my daily life, and Boy, howdy, do I not want to hear the Moldy Peaches or give you Dawson. <laughs> the anti and anti-folk. What they are anti is meaning in the English language. <laughs> These lyrics are tattooed in my brain. Loose lips might sink ships, but loose gooses take trips. To San Francisco, double Dutch disco, tech TV hottie, do it for Scotty. Do it for the living and do it for the dead. Do it for the monsters under your bed. Do it for the teenagers and do it for your mom. Broken hearts hurt, but they make us strong. That's one verse of a Kimya Dawson song, and it's just stream of consciousness goddamn nonsense. And I, I hate it. I yeah. hate it so much. <laughs> Why do we love folk music? You think of Bob Dylan, he's not a great singer, not a great guitar player, but his lyrics just mean so much. So you take all of the qualities of folk music, but you replace the times they are changing with. And I never met a Toby that I didn't like. Hey. <laughs> it's like, this is so fucking stupid. <laughs> Sorry. I Okay, I, I'm, I, I guess I'm the, the stalwart <laughs> defender on this episode. This is what like, I'm going to be doing. So, okay, for me, I feel like what the anti-folk is doing. First of all, Ben, one of the my favorite bands is an anti-folk band that you introduced me to is Andrew Jackson Jihad, now known as AJJ. They're folk punk. They're not anti-folk. No, they call themselves <laughs> anti-folk. They are, they are no. labeled as an anti-folk band, yeah. And their lyrics are full of meaning but they have some nonsense songs. But I feel like the nonsense songs are a reaction to the necessity of meaning. That making songs just to be happy and be silly is just as acceptable as making a song that is about your trauma or about politics or things like that. And so while, yes, it comes off majorly <laughs> naff, I will fully admit that this is a soundtrack I listened to regularly when I was uh, a teenager and a young adult. I, I loved this soundtrack. It's super naff to look back on and hear some of those lyrics where you're like, man, that's really early 2000s thousands kind of gibberish but it was also fun it was speaking to okay we just want to have a nice time please i don't want everything to Mm. be injected full of meaning it was like the the pop of folk where pop is there for you to have fun i just want to have a nice time the lyrics don't have to mean a whole lot of anything i came up with a bunch of rhymes that don't mean anything and i'm singing it and everyone is just going like yeah snaps for you bro like that sounds cool (laughs) 
real coffee shop kind of uh, slam poetry kind of lyrics. And yeah. I think it's really endearing. <laughs> You know, yeah, like I said, it works it. for this. And mm-hmm. some of the specific music cues in this movie, like when they introduce Polly Bleeker, Michael Sarah getting ready to run and they play the Kinks, well-respected man, which is about a guy who gets up at the same time every day and he's running like that musical cue is just chef's kiss. Cause he gets up in the morning and he goes to work at nine. And he comes back home at 5.30 Gets the same train every time Cause his world is built on punctuality But, mm. yeah, the mumbly, nonsense, lyric, anti-folk, ukulele vibe It only works in a twee movie Ironically, it fills me with rage <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, Jordana, yeah. I don't, I don't want to music peed into you but there isn't a single ukulele played in this film it's just the ukulele has transcended an instrument and become a vibe yeah yes it's a vibe the anti-folk songs are so ukulele vibed ukulele pilled if you will (laughs) are ukuleles what's that thing like where white people steal other someone else's culture appropriation are ukuleles appropriation of some kind are they not is that a hawaiian instrument no, it's associated there. I remember looking this up once because of the same question, Jordana. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we're, we co-host a podcast together. Apparently it's a Portuguese invention, and I think their sailors brought it around the South Pacific or whatever. Interesting. Because yeah. I know the guitar was like Spanish, kind of vaguely Spanish influence, so I guess they were just, that area was mm. very big into tiny string instruments. As Portugal is smaller to Spain, <laughs> yeah. they miniaturized. I wanted to say something about white soy culture that I think has become the dominant culture that we live in today in America. The way that people speak on Reddit or in Marvel movies, that hadn't taken over yet. And I think that Juno is a really great marker for what is to come. And that's why it's important. That's why we're doing this podcast episode about it. Also because a single hand really responsible for the Dobbs. There was this blog in the 2000s called Stuff White People. Like, I don't know if either of you guys are familiar I with remember, it. I remember, I used to read it, yeah. Yeah, it was written by a gentleman who went to McGill at the same time as you, I believe. And Juno is on the list. It's a list of 100 items. And one of those things is Juno. And what the blog is describing is white urban educated people who are obsessed with authenticity, essentially hipsters, but dorky hipsters, not even the cool kind. Mm -hmm. And so that was a subculture in 2007. And now I think that because of the nature of who those people are, educated white people, that's become the dominant part of our culture now. And there are a couple corporations that are mentioned on this blog. And here's the complete list of corporations mentioned on the Stuff White People Like blog in 2008, mind you. Apple, Netflix, New Balance, Whole Foods, and Facebook. I looked at the market valuation for them back then and today. And if you had just invested in companies mentioned on this list, you would have multiplied the amount of money you have by 80. Because the things that educated hipsters liked in 2008 have become the mainstream of society. In that way, this sort of culture and the way people speak and the things that they liked are just everywhere now. It's, it's, it's gone mainstream, essentially. It's what I would have imagined it would have been like to watch Bob Dylan in the 70s and then see him make truck commercials 20 years down the line. <laughs> That's fucking fascinating. I think also it's it's the people who make cultural products tend to have gone to college, right? That's, that is I mean, the yeah. big fucking filter for the stuff white people like. It's the people who went to college are the ones who are creating a lot of this pop culture. And, so, and yep. they all picked up the same fucking cultural signifiers when they went to college. <laughs> Stop going! to college <laughs> remember shuffle is an anti-doctor anti-college pod God and what's damn. your what's your occupation again ben I forgot, I <laughs> no, forgot. that's not that's, that's not important <laughs> <laughs> It's funny because, again, as an Australian, right, the real kind of picture of the Australian landscape is not the same as the American one. That hipster culture kind of flashed and went. What we have currently is what replaced that is a very concerted effort to gentrify certain areas. So rather than just like there's a hipster cafe where they serve you a fucking deconstructed latte that you have to make yourself shit that I hated, that flashed away very quickly. We don't have a lot of that anymore. We've kind of flashed out really fast. And so that culture is not not super dominant here. So Interesting. So Australia avoided the Junoization of society. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The Junoization is that. That's what we're going to call it from now. Yeah, we kind of avoided that. Yeah, instead of saying your neighborhood got gentrified, you could say it got Junofied. <laughs> got Junoed. 
<laughs> this is someone playing a ukulele on the sidewalk now. <laughs> I'm going to make a separate video, I think, about Gen X people in the 2000s because I feel like I bring it up every episode. But this movie is a very Gen X movie. It's written by a Gen X writer and it's ostensibly about a millennial, like a lot of art in the 2000s. It's yeah. about a millennial, but it's actually written by Gen X people. And it's mm. so easy to see that in the qualities of the film. Actually, the reason that Juno is on the stuff white people like blog, the blog claims that the, the reason white people like it is because Juno is the perfect Gen X child. You hope that you have a child who listens to Iggy Pop and the Stooges. That's not how anyone in 2007 behaved. Ben, you were like a punk mm. kid and your favorite band was not the stooges you know no, that was that was a little too proto-punk for me i was more like the clash like the classics but exactly because you, you would have had to have been a gen x person to really understand the culture that much and so it's just it's funny how much that comes through the movie and i think that's also an artifact i guess is the right word an artifact of any generation writing to the generation below them and so diablo cody when she was writing that i do feel like yeah she's a gen x writer trying to find what's a cool kid how do cool kids talk now and she kind of made up a language a little bit rather than actually trying to listen to kids and the way that they spoke and i feel like if you try and capture youth speak at a particular moment it evolves so fucking fast so whatever fast. the youth whatever <laughs> the youth are saying so you are immediately going to date yourself i think you are better off kind of inventing your own whatever youth twee fucking speak i do love the use of the word dude in this film i'm a mm -hmm. huge yeah. fan of dude dude is a gender neutral pronoun <laughs> women call women dude in this film men call women dude in this film I will never stop sounding like a Gen X SoCal surfer in my use of dude. I'm going to die on this hill. My colleagues make fun of me. I don't care. Saying dude or sick or whatever, like the, 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 mm -hmm. the, the fucking language of my youth. What is more cringe? A 32-year-old man saying dude and sick or saying fucking dead ass? <laughs> yeah dead ass yeah. no cap oh, get out of here mm -hmm. but on the yeah. on the topic of trying to listen to teenagers talk and make it genuine i went to see alan ball the writer of american beauty and true blood speak at the opera house and he was talking about a specific line in american beauty someone had asked him how did you capture teenage girl voices being a middle-aged man and he did the thing that writers do where you are at a place and you hear a teenager say something and then you wrote down and the line that he said was the most teenager thing was was one that he had heard and it was you love him you want to have like a million of his babies and that was something he had overheard at a sports game and pulling from real life like that can absolutely work and it doesn't really date that because that just sort of feels like a phrase you mm -hmm. can pull a lot of that but if you're trying to have slang all all the time you're absolutely you're right ben you're gonna date yourself and so you might as well just go for gold and invent a language honest to blog jordan i think that's the right opinion <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was trying to imagine what this would sound like if it was by someone in, in high school and mm -hmm. i know what people in toronto in high school sound like because i like follow a lot of like i guess youth instagram accounts uh, not accounts sure. they're not they're not personal accounts they're meme accounts for the record meme accounts like um six buzz to take a seat take the l bud like, so here here's what this movie sounds like recreated as a modern canadian high school movie like a gen z kind of thing exactly Exactly, yeah. Yo, fam, your ego is prego, no cap. On God, fam, this is one etch a sketch that cannot be undone. All facts, bro. Thanks. I hate it. <laughs> no, that's actually, weirdly, the same level of charming to me. Really? Because I haven't touched that at all. And I can absolutely picture a character saying that, yeah. like in a movie about children. That sounds so fucking funny to me. Because if it were an Australian bunch of teenagers, they'd be like, oh, I'm fucking prego, mate. Oh, sick. That's fucking shit, eh? Aussie slang is almost intergenerational. And you just take any word and you add an o at the end of it and that's the new slang word for it thank you jordan for not including the c word in your impression <laughs> I, yeah i was gutted i was like wait a second i'm talking to two canadians in a in a fucking american promoted podcast i better i better not just drop yeah. the most commonly used word in australian <laughs> lexicon we would have bleeped it but yeah if they call you that that actually means that you're their friend if they someone comes up to you and says mate in a really serious tone you're in trouble yeah if someone goes oh you're a fucking funny that's good yeah. mm -hmm. if they say mate fucking calm down you're in a fight you're about to get <laughs>
uh, you're about to get bottled. <laughs> you're about to get bottled. No, mate, they don't bully you. They fucking glass you. All right? Ah, that's it. Fucking, <laughs> fucking glass. Okay, we should wrap up. Right. Okay, let me just say a quick thing about the origin of the movie. One argument that I have in favor of the camp that this is not a cynical cash grab on tweet culture is that Diablo Cody was a blogger. That's how she cut her teeth as a writer. She wrote two yeah. blogs. One where she wrote it in the voice of, she was pretending to be like an Eastern European woman who was working in the Soviet Union as a secretary. And then she had a far more popular blog where she was a stri- she was a stripper during the day or at night, I guess that was her day job. <laughs> <laughs> she was a stripper as her, her day job. job. And she worked at a peep show place and she wrote about that extensively. I just want to put this in because it is a very nice time capsule because people forget or people don't know that in the 2000s, blogs were super important. They were the vlogs or the TikToks of their day. This is how you could put out something creative as a regular person in web 2.0 pre absolutely for tiktoks and i think that that was a good thing i really liked vlogs and it forced you to write and develop a voice in a way that i don't think vlogging or tiktoking does necessarily so i'm going to get on a bit of an old person soapbox here old man yells at clouds (laughs) (laughs) i'm yelling at the clouds right now and saying that vlogging did force people into a creative medium that made younger people you know maybe you could go on to write a movie after i don't know how many tiktokers are translating their TikTok success into a beautiful feature film like Juno. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> fully agree with that opinion because mm-hmm. they are also forced you to go looking for content. You couldn't just slap on YouTube or like a blog YouTube and just look for content. You kind of had to hear about it from someone or there was a link from another blogger. So it kind of felt like this fun Easter egg find where if you found a good blog, it was it was really really fun. And they were each creating usually their own very particular, usually very personal content. Content. And sometimes they would have drawings that would accompany that. So there was like an art element to it. A lot of contemporary video memes, whether you're a, a YouTube vlogger or a TikTok performer, or if you were a Vine guy back in the day, it's a lot of d- a recycled joke that everyone's kind of doing uh, at the same time. So it's like a, like a, mm. almost like a, a flash mob. It's like a flash mob, mm. but in, in a, a scattershot one that's been completely deconstructed where someone does a thing and then someone else starts doing it and then everyone's doing it and it's like wow we all did this thing and then it's gone in like t- t- you know 20 days yeah. and I, I had a personal love for blogs and I just finished reading the hyperbole and a half book and I have the second one because hyperbole and a half was a blog that I was obsessed with because it spoke to a lot of mental health struggles that I and my friends were having and Ali Broch wrote in such a funny way about that stuff that it's harder to find content like that yeah yeah I mean listen damn Daniel is one of my favorite videos on the internet, but I'm still waiting the damn Daniel screenplay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So closing thoughts. Let's just say something we like about the movie and and some things that we don't like. The thing I like most, all these little touches that I talked about, whoever was doing the costumes and the props and the set design, everyone was just so on point. Hmm. The little touch, like how did Jennifer Garner end up with Jason Bateman? How did this type A baby obsessed lady end up with this cool rocker, never grow up guy? And they'll have these little touches where as she's painting the baby room, you see she's wearing an Alice in Chains shirt that's all spotted. Oh, you were into grunge too once upon a time. They didn't need to do that, but it's just like a little touch, show don't tell, that gives you backstory, which I find is so nice. Can I just say about that specific scene when they're painting the room, what did that room used to be? That was the room that Mark used to have his instruments in, that the room that he was given in his house. I think that this movie just is really good at doing a lot of show don't tell. There's a lot of small details that they leave unsaid, they don't force feed it to you, that are very nice. It does not treat the viewer with the sheer baby brain contempt that a lot of <laughs> modern films do. Yeah. Where, some, where someone will be like, I was in World War One, and it was very traumatizing, the things that I saw over there. <laughs> in the tra- like, that's, Giordano made this observation to me years ago, but the difference in the treatment of World War One trauma between Peaky Blinders, the British show, which does it very well, and yeah. Boardwalk Empire, which does it very poorly. That, le- that line I said about the things I saw in France is practically verbatim from Boardwalk Empire, (laughs) whereas Peaky Blinders will do it through, oh, look, 
fucking Tommy Shelby is smoking opium and he has these flashbacks and it's no dialogue. It's like, it, it's mm. a very nice show. Don't tell kind yeah. of way, but I mean, yeah. the, the Brits are particularly good at that. And the Americans. Oh yeah. And it's cause they hate, something. it's cause they hate talking about their feelings anyway. Mm-hmm. So they, they, yeah. yeah. They, no, it's really easy to, to, <laughs> to forget about that. It works. I think also because of Elliot page, I was listening yes. to this movie yesterday while I walked around and a lot of the quirky dialogue, it sounded like a high school play. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. then once I watched it and I'm looking at Elliot Page's beautiful face and charisma, I was charmed by it. Also, his enunciation in that movie is great. The way that he delivers the lines, they're so crisp, clear. Look, I just drank my weight in Sunny D. One thing I noticed about Juno is that it fails a little test I like to call the Brodel test. There are not two named male characters that discuss something other than the relationship with Juno. The closest we get is a scene in which Polly Bleeker and a character named VJ are jogging together, but they are discussing the Juno relationship and pregnancy. So it fails this very important representational test, the Brodel test. Yeah, the, the, the matriarchy invaded our pregnancy movie, folks. There's not nearly enough male representation in this movie about pregnancy. Oh, there was a couple of clips here that we didn't end up playing, but in terms of things that feel out of place now, there was a, one of the lines from the movie. Wow, can you tell if it's a boy or a girl? Um, I can't, the doctor can, but you know, I kind of want it to be a surprise. Well, it can only go one of two ways. That's what you think. I mean, I drink tons of booze, so you might end up with one of those scary neuter babies is born without junk. Junk, huh? Yeah, you know, it's parts. I know what junk is. Yeah, right. We definitely. Okay. I'd say it's a bitch. Yeah. In closing, go watch Juno again. It's good. <laughs> Seriously. And you know what? It's a tight 90 minutes. Who doesn't love a yes. fucking tight 90 minute movie? <laughs> you don't need yes. you don't need a three hour Juno movie. <laughs> yeah. You know what? We may have invaded two countries and caused the deaths of millions of people. But you know what this fucking culture gave us? Tight 90 minute movies. Not these fucking... <laughs> Two and a half hour snooze fest that we have now. (laughs) One of the things I like about this movie is there are some themes of maturity that I think act as a through line throughout the movie. It is a coming of age tale for Juno and how people are matured in this movie by the arrival of a new person who itself is maturing from nothingness. And everybody in this movie reacts very differently to being forced to mature because of the arrival of this baby. Juno gets over herself, becomes less sarcastic. Jason Bateman's character literally regresses you know he becomes a child because this child enters the world jay garns she gets over her like need to control everything and have everything be perfect you know she sort of accepts her type a picture perfect family she doesn't get to have but she still is able to have a child and paulie bleaker he doesn't change it all nothing happens with him because he has no character (laughs) but (laughs) because he's already perfect as judo says he's like the coolest person she's ever met and he doesn't even have to try it's yeah it's actually i I try a lot (laughs) in congress with the character what have we seen to indicate that he's cool Mm -hmm. so if you joined us thank you so much for listening like and subscribe give us the five stars we love it before we go our guest today jordan is much smarter than us he actually (laughs) wrote a book and i told him we would let him plug his book to our dozens nay hundreds of listeners so jordan tell us about your book you're much too kind thank you so much for having me on i hope i've been an appropriately okay guest and didn't talk too much so i wrote a book it is called ugly a biking's life it is a, a true crime memoir about the guy who founded the gypsy jokers motorcycle club here in in sydney he is a, a former boxer a, a vietnam war veteran and a murderer he went to prison for for murder and he was a really interesting guy to talk to. And so I wrote his memoir for him. And so that is available. I don't know what they say. Is it wherever good books are sold? Like that's yeah. the that's the line. There's an Australian website called booktopia.com.au. I can recommend them because they're local. Uh, I would rather you didn't buy my book from Amazon because I hate that company. It look pirated if you want, like sure. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's available anywhere, but I know that you can get it from, from bookselling websites. So I, I... Send, me, send me some links. I'll put it in the show description. Uh, yeah, it's a no fun worries. book. I'm very proud of it. It, so I hope you like true crime stories told by an old Australian man. <laughs> Hell yeah. And what are his thoughts on teen pregnancy? <laughs> <laughs> 
Would not you say great. That this is a pro murder book? <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a pro motorcycle book. It's okay. a pro motorcycle anti-war. Uh, oh, okay, so, all right. Yeah, nice. yeah. Dude did not like going to war. Dude loves to fight. Loves fighting with his fists. But the minute bullets were involved, he fucking hated it. Mm. Uh, that which that makes thing. sense. <laughs> All right, cool. All right, cool. Uh, if you joined us, thanks so much. Oh, I said all that. All right, bye. Ciao. Leave a comment. Subscribe. I will read your comments. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Ciao. Au revoir. Blue slips might sing ships, but loose gooses take trips to San Francisco. Double Dutch disco. Take a be hottie. Do it for Scotty. Do it for the living and do it for the dead. Do it for the monsters under your bed. Do it for the teenagers and do it for your mom. Broken hearts hurt, but they make us strong. And we won't stop until somebody calls a cop. Even then we'll start again and just pretend that nothing ever happened. We won't stop until somebody calls a cop. And even then we'll start again and just pretend that nothing ever happened.